0: This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. Building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word.
1: Joshua chapter 1, I'll give you the the backdrop of the story here. Moses has been the leader of the children of Israel for 40 years. They've walked through the wilderness, well, really 42, a little over 42 years. They've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Now Moses is going off the scene and Joshua is going to take over and he's going to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. They could have gone into the promised land forty years earlier, but they rebelled against God and they said, Well, I don't care what God says, the people in the land is too are too strong for us, we can't do it. They took sides against God's word. Folks, every time you take every time you do something contrary to the word, you're taking sides against it. That's why God said, You've got to learn to think my thoughts and operate in my ways, so that you're on my side, not against me. Now Joshua is going to take over. He's got some pretty big shoes to fill. I mean, Moses is the one that went on the mountain. And there was thunders and lightnings and and all these terrible things, so much so that the people feared. And and there were earthquakes and all kinds of stuff that was taking place. And so they said, nobody can live through that. And Moses comes down and his face is shining so much people are afraid of him. And Joshua is going to follow him. So he's going to have to have some instruction. He's going to have to have some help if he's going to fill Moses' shoes. Now, it's the will of God for Joshua to take over. So God has a plan for Joshua just as much as he had a plan for Moses, right? I think a lot of times we take the same attitude. We say, well, how could anybody? We hear stories and we see people, men of God, that were faithful and followed God. And and even even stories in the Bible and and scriptures where it tells us about Jesus and tells us about Paul and some of the other apostles when they did things right. And, um, and we look at those and we think, well, we could never follow in those footsteps. Well, sure you can. God's got a plan for you just as much as He had a plan for them. May not be the same plan, may not be doing the same thing in the same way, but He's still got a plan for you. And all you gotta do is find out what that plan is and walk in it and you'll be just as, su- as successful as they were. Well, Joshua's gonna be given instruction on how to be successful in what He's gonna do. So Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, here's God talking to Joshua. He said, this book of the law, now that's all they had of the Word of God at that time. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. Notice where the word's supposed to be. It's supposed to be in your mouth, not in your lap. (laughs) And notice what else it says. It says it shall not depart out of your mouth. How do you keep something from departing out of your mouth? Because once you say it, it's gone. There's only one way you can keep it in your mouth, folks, and that is to keep saying it. And that's the point he's making. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. In other words, he's saying Joshua never stop saying what the word says. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Now notice, meditating and speaking the word have a connection. Meditation is not some Eastern religion thing where you sit cross-legged and, you know, hum. Empty your mind. Every other religion in the world says that meditation is emptying your mind. The Bible says that meditation is putting the word of God to fill your mind with the word of God. God's giving Joshua the keys to success. Now, the Bible says God's no respecter of persons. So if this makes Joshua successful in what God had for him to do, it'll make you successful in what God has for you to do. And it's the only way you can be successful with God. Now, the world's got something that it calls success, but it doesn't measure up to what God is and what God has for us. So he says, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein. Meditating in the word is speaking the word of God. Not just some ritual, not just some repetitious thing, but thinking about what you're saying. Considering what you're saying, considering the truth of, what, of the words that are coming out of your mouth. That's what meditating in the word is. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Now, how often are we supposed to do it? Day and night. Folks, he's not talking about Bible reading. He's not talking about Bible study. He's talking about taking the Scripture with you everywhere you go. He's talking about making the Scripture a part of your inner man. For what purpose? That thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written in. Folks, the Bible says the doer is blessed in his deed. Not the thinker. Not even the talker. The doer is blessed in his deed. The whole purpose for confession is so that we do what the Bible says to do in our lives. Now, what's going to be the result if we speak the word of God, meditate in the word of God, think about what we're saying, give attention to what we're saying, and then act on the word of God in our lives? In other words, change our thoughts and our ways to the word of God. What Isaiah 55 is talking about, thinking God's thoughts and operating in his ways. What happens if we do that? Last part of verse 8. For then, after thinking and doing the word, then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Now, how many Christians, do you know, that are trying to be successful and prosperous without doing the first two steps, for, without the first two steps, without thinking his thoughts and, and doing and operating in his ways? Every religious Christian is. So what is he saying? Joshua, God's telling Joshua the same thing that he spoke through Isaiah. Think his thoughts and operate in his ways. He used a little different terminology, but it's exactly the same principle. Yep, yeah, but Pastor Michael, that's Old Testament. We'll turn with me over to Romans chapter twelve. Let's see if we can find a New Testament correlation. Romans chapter twelve. Now in my Bible, Romans is in the New Testament. I've got a special one. And Paul is writing by the Holy Ghost. Now, notice what he says, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, and this has to do with the things that he said before. He said, based on the things that I've told you before, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Most translations say that instead of, translate that instead of reasonable service, spiritual worship. Remember in John chapter 4, Jesus talking to the woman at the well of Samaria? She said, where should we worship? Did you say we should worship God in Jerusalem? Others say that we should worship God in Mount Sinai. Where should we worship God? Jesus said, talking about the day that we're in, the day uh, is coming and now is, where those that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. He didn't say, here's what God wants. He said, here's the requirement. You must worship him in spirit and in truth. How do you do that? By operating in his ways, presenting your body a living sacrifice. That's what spiritual worship is. The charismatics are real good about saying, well, spiritual worship means we're singing to God in other tongues. Listen, singing to God in other tongues is a wonderful thing. It can bring great blessing in your life. But that's not spiritual worship. Spiritual worship is living your life according to the word. It's living your life according to the word. It's operating in God's ways. And that's what Paul says he is encouraging them. Beseech means encourage. He said, I'm encouraging you. You present your body a living sacrifice. God can't do that for you. Folks, if God could make Christians do what he wanted, do you think the church would be in the situation it's in? Not a chance. But it's not his choice. It's ours. So Paul says, I encourage you. By the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Why? Because it's holy, it's acceptable unto God, and it's a, it's the way that you worship him in spirit. That's why he's telling them to do it. Verse 2, and then he says, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why do we want to do that? That you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, folks, God doesn't have three wills. He didn't have one good will, and he doesn't have one acceptable will, and he doesn't have one perfect will. Now there's no question that you can be part way in the will of God. No question about that. There's no question that you can do things that are acceptable unto God but are not his best or his perfect uh, intent. No question about that. But God only has one will. And how do you find the will of God? How do you walk in the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God? This is the number one question in people 's lives. How can I find the will of God for my life? Verse two tells you, Renew your mind to the word, in other words, think his thoughts. Now notice the same connection that Paul makes is the same connection that Isaiah makes is the same connection that Joshua one eight tells us about that God made and given Joshua instruction. Think the Word and live it. So he said, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, learn to think God's thoughts. The word renew is, is an interesting word. It means reversal by repetition. That's what the word renew means. It means to reverse by repetition. Now, remember Joshua 1.8. God told Joshua, say the word of God continuously, repeatedly, day and night. I wonder if God knew that Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 was coming along down the road. They're talking about the same thing, folks. It's the same principle that Isaiah 55 brings out. You and only you can renew your mind to the word. And it doesn't happen accidentally and it doesn't happen casually. It happens purposefully or it doesn't happen at all. So he says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice that the transformation for the Christian, he's writing to believers, he's talking to people that are saved and people that are spirit-filled. He says the transformation in the Christian life comes from the renewing of the mind. The transformation in the Christian life comes from the renewing of the mind to the Word of God. In other words, the degree to which you think God's thoughts and act on them is the degree to which you're going to see the reality of the blessings that the Bible promises come to reality in your life or come to pass in your life. Your choice. It's up to you. And the flip side of that is that's why so many Christians are weak. That's why so many Christians don't have answers for things in life. That's why they don't know. That's why so many Christians are saying, well, I just I thought God wanted this for me, but uh, the way it hasn't worked out, I just don't know. And so religion has come up with this idea, God works in mysterious ways. They're only mysterious if you don't know what the Word says. Because when you know what the Bible says about who God is and what He does, there's no mystery but rather an expectation.
0: Join us for our Christmas Eve candlelight service with Pastor Mike Webb.
1: Christmas is a special time here at Foothill Family Church. I want to especially invite you to our Christmas Eve candlelight service. We have a chance to celebrate when Jesus came to the earth to be our Savior. Come join us this Christmas Eve.
0: Again, that's the Christmas Eve candlelight service at 6 p.m. December 24th at Foothill Family Church. For more information, go to www.mikeweb.tv.
1: So he says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove, or so that you may prove. The word prove means to determine by experience. So you may determine by experience in your own life what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You want to experience the will of God in your life? Renew your mind to the word. Well, in what area, Pastor Mike? Well, what area do you need? If you want to experience the, word, the will of God in your life concerning healing, then meditate on healing scriptures. Renew your mind to what the Bible says about healing. If you want to determine the, and experience the will of God in your life concerning finances, then renew your mind to what the Bible says about finances. Why? Because the word is just like rain. It won't go back to heaven void of power. It will produce what it was intended to produce. Now, verse 3, for I say, now Paul is speaking by the Holy Ghost, but notice how he says this. He said, for I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you. In other words, Paul is saying, here's what I'm telling you through my experience. He stands in the office of an apostle. He's been an apostle for many years at this point when he writes it. And so he's saying, here's what I've learned. Here's what I know from my experience in, in, uh, in ministry. I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself. Now, if you're reading along in the King James, please notice of himself is in italics. Anytime you find something in the King James translation that's in italics, it means the translators added it to help us understand what's being talked about. Most cases, they did a good job with this. In this case, they limited what he's talking about. It certainly includes what we think about ourselves. But he's not just talking about what we think about ourselves. He's talking about what we think about anything. He says, for I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think more highly. Now, that would include us and what we think about ourselves. But notice the principle. The point is that he's encouraging us not to think more highly than we ought to think. Now, number one, he does not say don't think highly. He says, don't think more highly than you ought to. But instead to think soberly. The word sober, the the root word of the root meaning of the word sober means not moved by emotion. Not moved by emotion. How many people do you know that think according to their emotions? Well, that always works out well, doesn't it? Those people are up one day and down the next. Down the next and down the next and down the next, and then they'll find an up day somewhere down the road, and then they're down the next. Thinking according to your emotions never works. It's unstable. So he says, I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Don't be moved by your emotions. Don't let your emotions guide your thoughts. But to think soberly, according to what? Well, if we're not going to think according to our emotions, then what we are going to think according to? According as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. In other words, Paul is saying, renew your mind to the word and think according to what you believe, not according to what you feel. Now folks, you know what the problem is with God's idea about finances? Let me give you a little church history lesson. Throughout the church world, there have been ebbs and flows to believing God about certain things. We know in the book of Acts it started off where there were signs and wonders and miracles. Hard to argue against miracles when they're happening in front of you. That's the one thing that shut up the the Pharisees when the guy was healed and they couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't say anything about it. They're they're asking themselves, well, how can we argue? The guy was crippled and now he's healed. Well, what are we going to say about that? And so there have been times where there was a greater degree of healings. There were a greater degree of miracles in the church history. But then there were other times where it went down and where there was very little. It it was always in manifestation to some degree or another. The supernatural has always been in manifestation to, to some degree. But there have been many times during church history where it's been much lesser than other times. And then there'll be a revival and there'll be another move of God. And the finances or the, the supernatural aspect of things will, will come around, healings and so forth. And, and whenever you find healings and miracles taking place, you see financial things taking place too. You see financial miracles, you see financial provision taking place. It, it's, it's all, they always travel together without question. In the most recent times... The dividing line, and and you can go back in church history from the, from as far as we have historical records. The place where people turn away from the supernatural has always been finances. I'm talking about in the church. I'm not talking about before then. I'm not talking about in the ministry of Jesus. I'm talking about in the church world. There have all the dividing line has always become finances. In other words. When there's a revival and people start getting saved and healing start taking place and miracles start taking place, nobody can argue with that. But then when teaching comes along about finances, that's where the religious sect and the religious group steps back and says, I just can't accept that. And then the supernatural stops. Now, Why? Why are finances so difficult for people to accept? Why is the idea that God wants to do things supernaturally in the area of finances more difficult to accept that God will do supernatural things in the area of healings or other kinds of miracles or things like that? Why is that more difficult? You know as well as I do, you have a harder time believing for finances than any other thing. Why? Verse 3 is the answer. Because we haven't learned to think in the way that we should And religion, who's partnered up with the devil, is always there to say, you don't really think God wants you to be blessed, do you? The whole religious notion is Jesus came, Jesus saved us, Jesus left to go to the Father and said, no, you stay here for a while. And because the idea that heaven is so much better than anything we're ever going to experience on the earth, then obviously God must want to suffer here on the earth. Well, folks, he doesn't. He didn't leave us here to suffer. He left us here to occupy. He left us here to rule in his name, to reign in his name, to do the works of Jesus until he comes back so that there'd be more of us for him to come back for. But the notion is always there and it always comes back to verse 3. It's all this thinking more highly of yourself. Why do you think the translators put of himself in there? Because that's where they stumbled. It's not in the text. There's no Greek text. There's no Greek words that would cause them to think that Paul is talking about what we think of ourselves. Why would they put it in there? Because they stumble. They're human. They stumble of the same thing that most everybody else does. And that's where the stumbling point is. And here's what religion will do. Religion will say, now you know that the appropriate thing to do is just humble yourself before God. And what does that mean? Well, religion says humble yourself means sit back and be a dishrag and take whatever comes. And religion, furthermore, says that to stand up and say, wait a minute, God wants me well, that's prideful. And to say, God wants me blessed, that's prideful. And it's that pride versus humility dynamic that keeps most people, in my opinion, you judge it for yourself, but in my opinion, it's that pride versus humility dynamic that keeps most people from appropriating the blessings of God in their life to the degree that God wants it to be. Let me ask you a question. Let's just get down right down to the nitty-gritty, forget all this religious talk or Christian talk or whatever. How much does God want you to have? Well, I want it to be a lot, Pastor Mike, but how much does he want you to have? It's a real question, folks. I mean, there, uh, it's not a trick. It's not, you know, well, wait a minute. There's one scripture that says this. I'm asking you to determine that for yourself because that's what he's talking about. Thinking according to the measure of your faith. How much does God want you to have? Well, we've got some examples in the Bible. We've got the example of the Old Testament, where Egypt, uh, where Israel came out of Egypt, which is a type of Israel, uh, a type of uh, uh, the world, coming into salvation, coming out of the bondage of sin and into salvation, and they came out with silver and gold, and there was not one people among them. We've got another example where David furnished, provided for the building of the temple, Solomon's temple. He couldn't build it himself because he had to defeat the enemies. He was a man of war, not a man of peace. Solomon, his son, would build the temple, but David provided the finances for it. And the amount of money that David gave, the amount of money that we can identify that David gave, is equal to the wealth of the world today. Now, I don't know how that works. But monetarily, it's equal to the total wealth of the world today. That cannot be coincidental. What does that mean? To mean it means complete provision. It doesn't mean everybody wants, you know, God wants every Christian to be more rich than Bill Gates. It means to me, complete provision. Nothing lacking, nothing missing. So we've got some Old Testament examples. Furthermore, we've got some examples when Israel entered into the promised land. God told them, Moses told them, Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, he told them what they're going to find. He said, now your, your crops are going to grow and your, your flocks are going to multiply and your, 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 your herds and your olive trees and your vineyards, your silver and gold will be multiplied. You'll have more than you know, need of everything. You'll build good houses. You'll do all this kind of stuff. And he gave them one warning, only one. He said, don't forget God. He said, you'll eat bread without scarceness. Without scarceness. You won't lack for anything. Well, why does the Bible tell us that? If that's not what God intends. Folks, I got to tell you, I I shared this a little bit last week. I don't know how good a job I did with it. But I just saw something over the last few weeks that i would never seen before. When Israel came out of Egypt and they borrowed, the King James says they borrowed. Literally, they demanded of those that they had been in bondage to for 400 years. They said, okay, pay us now. They came out with silver and gold. The Bible says they spoiled the Egyptians. That wasn't for them to live on. They lived on manna day after day after day. They lived on the quail that God provided for them and the water that came out of the rock. It wasn't their wealth having spoiled Egypt, which is a type of the world, was not for the purpose of them having something to live on. God provided for that. Please understand, wealth and daily provision are not the same thing in God's vocabulary. I've never seen that before. I mean, I knew the stories, but I never put it together. You know, the only thing that the Bible says they ever used their wealth for in the wilderness? Don't tell me it was for the promised land, because when they went into the promised land, they defeated the enemies and spoiled everything that was there in the cities. They divided everything up. They didn't need the wealth for the promised land. So the wealth that they got coming out of Egypt was for one and only one purpose, and that was for the time that they were in the wilderness. Why? There's no piggly wiggly out there to buy stuff. There is not a Costco in sight. What did they need? The silver and gold of Egypt. Why did they need to spoil Egypt for the wilderness? There's only one thing they did with it. Well, two things actually. First thing they did is they made a golden calf. (laughs) Not a good idea. Moses came down from the mountain, commanded the, the Aaron and the other people to grind it up into powder and then made them drink it. But the only appropriate thing that they used their wealth for in the wilderness was to bring an offering for the building of the tabernacle. And it was so much that Moses had to go back and say, stop, don't let everybody give any more offerings. We've got more than we need. Wouldn't it be great if that's the way the church operated? That's the only thing they needed it for. That's the only thing they used it for appropriately. They didn't live on it day to day. They still had to trust God for daily provision, which tells us one thing. God saw that having wealth doesn't mean it's an automatic that somebody won't trust him. You can have wealth and still trust God day to day. Apparently. So how much does God want you to have? Now, here's the problem. The problem is you start talking like this and people get stars in their eyes or dollar signs in their eyes. They start thinking, cha-ching, cha-ching. <laughs> oh, I could go buy this and I could go buy that. I could go do this. I could do, do that. Well, folks, all the things that you think you need to buy, you should be trusting God for that. That should be part of your day-to-day living. Remember, that the key is to think according to the measure of faith. I don't believe that God wants to give you some kind of pool of wealth so that you can do something with it then that you can't believe him for now. To put it in a New Testament context, Israel spoiling Egypt was God giving seed to the sower. Not bread to the eater. The bread to the eater part was manna. The bread to the eater part was water coming out of the rock. Two different things seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Believe in God from day to day, believe in God. Philippians 4.19 19, My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory, is bread to the eater. Some of us, God wants you to have. The greatest sign of humility is to receive what the Bible says belongs to you. Many people in the church look at it just the other way around. They think that it's arrogant to claim the promise of God. But to do otherwise is to trust in yourself rather than to trust in God and His Word. Thanks for watching today and come visit us at Foothill Family Church.
0: Join us for our Christmas Eve candlelight service with Pastor Mike Webb.
1: Christmas is a special time here at Foothill Family Church. I want to especially invite you to our Christmas Eve candlelight service. We have a chance to celebrate when Jesus came to the earth to be our Savior. Come join us this Christmas Eve.
0: Again, that's the Christmas Eve candlelight service at 6 p.m. December 24th at Foothill Family Church. For more information, go to www.mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church Building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word.